Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and some other hunt strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of November 7th, 2022. Mike, you want to take it away? Absolutely. Another great week. Um, So we're starting off with an article from CyberScoop. Um, and it's talking about the insurance giant settles the NotPetya lawsuit. And so in this article, um, you know, with the NotPetya, it was tied to kind of Russian nation state. Um, and there was a large organization called Mandela's International that suffered greatly. So I think they, they estimated it was about $10 billion in damage globally. Um, but this is a really interesting article because you know in this podcast we talk a lot about cybersecurity insurance um, and kind of the rise in cybersecurity insurance as an offset and risk for a lot of these organizations um, but they were claiming and Zurich was claiming that this was an act of war so typically you have uh, gates in the insurance where you know the insurance company can not have to pay out for things like uh, act of God I think force majeure um, and acts of war was another exception, but the judge was able to rule that this was not an act of war, it was really collateral damage um, based on the type of malware and, and how they were affected. Um, so this could, and the article mentions, reshape how cyber insurance marketplaces respond and react to these type of events. Um, just another interesting note before I pass it off to you, Scott, is that there was a rise in uh, reported claims um, nearly 26,000 um, during 2021, up from 22,000, so about 6%, or excuse me, 6,000 increase. Um, but it seems like a lot of companies are mitigating the risk by using cyber insurance. Um, and I don't know how that's affecting their budget or how they actually protect themselves from a cybersecurity standpoint, but um, this is going to be an ongoing problem, uh, especially with the rise in malware. And as we're talking about a, a couple of other articles that we we brought up today, keeping insurance in mind and how organizations utilize it. So with that, I'll kind of pass it off to you, Scott. Any notes on this one? Yeah, so I, I did think it was an interesting take as far as, you know, the difference between the act of war and the collateral damage. Um, mm-hmm. And also noted that even when they got a payback or payment back when they were able to settle for that, they didn't get nearly close to what they lost. So it seems like the insurance covered something, which is, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but, you know, it didn't seem to cover everything. Uh, but it did kind of bring up something that, you know, you think about in typical when it comes to insurance and cyber insurance is the same way where you have a kind of like deductible, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, insurance really kicks in when you hit that, you know, $10,000 mark or whatever mark you have set for your deductible before it kicks in. Um, that I think is going to be interesting because, you know, they're drawing the line based on collateral damage and act of war. Well, what happens if you have the same attacker come at you more than once? and is successful and causes damages. Can the insurance company not insure that because of like negligence of not, you know, they can try to prove that you didn't do what you needed to do to prevent them from coming back. But we know persistent threats are gonna keep coming anyways. 
Um, so does that deductible really help you or not? Because, you know, maybe the first time an attacker hits you, the deductible might cover it um, or help cover it. But then when they hit you the right. second time, does that give them to think about, you know, other grounds for what that looks like? And then obviously critical infrastructure. We've talked about this before when we talked about insurance. They might not be the intended target of the operation, but they are the target for getting the operational effects. So how do they draw that collateral damage line there um, would be very interesting. Um, and, you know, being in those those sectors and spaces, something to really um, consider um, all the verbiage and things in those types of contracts for sure. Yeah. So to your point, I mean, having to, you know, go through cyber insurance, I've, I've dealt with what they asked for. It's typically like an audit, right? Like you, you mm -hmm. have to disclose what you're using from a infrastructure perspective um, uh, and kind of, you know, track those things, talk about past uh, exploits, um, talk about your cybersecurity infrastructures. So on to the next uh, article we'll talk about. Um, it's from Hacker News. Um, it's called Robin Banks Phishing Service for Crim Cyber Criminals Returns with Russian Server. So this story or article really covers a phishing as a service. And we've talked about some phishing as a service before. I think caffeine was the previous one we mentioned. Yep. Um, and it was a similar type of phishing service. It was in the Cloudflare, Cloudflare infrastructure, mm -hmm. got reported takedown type stuff, and then it's popped up onto DDoS Guard, which is actually a Russian-owned infrastructure. How DDoS Guard kind of works is they also protect the IP addresses of all the things they host behind, you know, kind of fronted IP addresses, and that's kind of how they protect against, you know, the so-called name DDoS Guard. But obviously, offers a lot of privacy protections as well. So some things that were, uh, you know, interesting. Um, one, obviously, Robin Banks, it first emerged uh, July, I think, of this year in 2022, or first documented, I should say. Um, so it seems like a, a, I would say, newer type service, but it sounds like it was pretty popular because there was the you know, visibility disruption when Cloudflare brought it down. Um, a lot of operations that they were seeing kind of halted, so it's, it's it was actively being used. But something that I thought was really interesting um, looking at it, too, is it used a couple cool um, tooling. One was the Evil Gen X2, which is kind of a this open source code for adversary in the middle. It's how they mm -hmm. help steal credentials and session cookies and things from known services. And they use something called AdSpec, which I've never seen before, which it's similar to profiling who you are when you're doing ad revenue stuff so that you can send the appropriate ads except for from an adversary perspective. So basically, depending on who you are, if you're not the intended target, they'll send you to the benign sites. So you don't even see the phishing activity versus if you get the, you know, if you're the intended target, then you'll go to the, you know, the adversary sites and things like that. So they can actually do really good selection on their targeting um, right. through this type of built-in service, which is, you know, seemed pretty sophisticated to me because that also helps um, prevent your stuff from being analyzed. You know, if there's a security researcher trying to, trying to dig into what you're doing, they will never like land on the page that you're, you know, intending to hit people with. So that was interesting. And then something I, I kind of thought about as well, and we've kind of talked about it before, but you know how people implement geo-blocking um, yep. as yep. a means of control? Well, this was interesting because it's a Russian-owned service, but if you look at the IP spaces owned by DDoS Guard, they're predominantly in Belize, Ecuador, um, and some of the Netherlands. So it, it makes me think, you know, and it, it does look like DDoS Guard 
they don't respond to takedown services very well. And I looked at some of the domains that are in those IP spaces, and it's very clear that there's some DGA type stuff existing there, some other things. So when looking at um, threats, you know, especially if you're going to implement uh, geoblocking, it might be good to look at IT-based services that are owned by said regions that you want to prevent because they might host their things other places or own IP spaces outside of their geolocations. Um, so it's, I thought that was interesting uh, kind of takeaway that I didn't even think about until I was reading this article. Um, but yeah, what did you think? I think it's really interesting. Just your last point you made um, with geoblocking. I mean, it's like you said, it's typically drilled down into just the IP address. Um, but, it, you know, taking a step further and actually getting the information around the company and maybe parsing that into some sort of list, right, that helps. Because to your point, I mean, I can spin up a service and, and potentially run it through a VPN or pay for, you know, pipe in a different country, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, it's it's pretty easy to do nowadays. So it, it, that gets you around that, that kind of geo-blocking from an IP address perspective. Yeah, but the, I, I feel like these services are going to pop up all over the place. And Cloudflare, um, a lot of these other hosting services has to be really diligent on tracking some of these services. And it's got to be pretty hard, especially because everything's so... Um, ephemeral right like aws is the same way i can spin up something in a day and tear it down mm -hmm. and disassociate myself from that ip address from that you know that uh net block that region and bounce regions if i need to right so it, it's really hard to if you if you build these in a kind of way that you can spin them up and spin them down wherever you need to you're talking like infrastructure as code it could be terraform it's a push of a button you have your whole infrastructure back up and running but yeah i think we're going to see more of these phishings as a service um, these type of uh, measures that people are using. And we talked about kind of the script kitties and the, the less mature people being able to use these kind of services. And they're, they're more reliable. They're uh, easily accessible. Um, and again, it just allows you to do complex work without the complex effort. So again, this kind of ties back to the insurance uh, article that we we're just talking about where there's a rise mm -hmm. in malware, there's a rise in phishing, there's a rise in a lot of these attacks because you're putting it in the hands of the individual, right? I kind of akin it to, uh, you know, cheating in video games, right? So back in the day when we were growing up, it took a lot of effort to be able to get that code compiled and run a bot and cheat in a game. And now you can go download an app and plug it in and run it immediately. So you have, mm -hmm. you know, again, it's just that ease of use and accessibility. So. Well, it's interesting, like, you talk about stuff as a service. I remember, you know, early days, botnets was, like, the most common malware. I felt like I was always being introduced to when I was entering the security space. It was like, oh, there's all these botnets, and there's this name, this name, this name. And and I was thinking, like, oh, this is really cool. But then in the long run, I was like, well, how, like, why would people keep doing these things? Like, how do they make money not realizing that someone might design, build, and get infections out there for botnets, but they're renting that infrastructure out continuously for people to utilize and it's like same right. thing, like, oh, you need 100 hosts to do something here. You can rent. I've got 100 hosts you can rent, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So now it just seems like it's expanding to so many other services. And it's, you know, we break down attacks into verticals to better understand them. Well, it seems like services are being spun up in different verticals to make attackers, you know, more successful or, or easy point of entry kind of thing. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure it's money making for these guys, like you're saying, like they're probably making a bunch of money. Um paying out access. I think this says what 15 bucks billed monthly for one of the services on here. Um, that's, that's pretty good revenue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I guess moving on, um, 
the next article is centered around PyPy packages. So those are installable packages for Python. Developers will typically use the command line to install modules that they need to program scripts, right? So people have started to push packages to that um, service with malware in them, right? So this article is from Hacker News um, and they uncovered another 29 malicious PyPy packages with the W4SP stiller um, specific to that malware strain. Um, there's been plenty of other situations where this has happened in the past. One of the most recent ones is the requests module that allows to uh, actually connect and download, you know, kind of like a curl or a git, wgit, um, where they just, it set up requests, it was just request without the S. And so people would mistype that package and then download the malware, right? So they do have scanning on top of this, this capability in PyPy, but you know, there's, it's, again, if it's a net new malware, I just read another article where there's a lot of false positives against some of these packages because of what they contain. And so this is a situation where some of these might slide through. Um, and then so for you, Scott, you want to kind of break down that W4SP stealer and kind of what that means for these people? You know, something that I thought was really interesting was, you know, the uh, the biggest avenue that some of these are being delivered were the type of squatter domains. So, you know, where you get your code from, kind of important. You got to make sure that you're, you're pulling down what you expect to pull down and going and getting it from the right place um, for one. But I actually found the stealer. I mean, the guy public, uh, published this on, on GitHub. And and I was digging through, you know, his source code. He makes it sound super sophisticated, which I love because it's not, and it doesn't need to be. So looking through it, um, and I'll walk through kind of what I did because you know so it's always good when you're gonna use code. Because I pull things down from GitHub to use all the time, or look at code packages and things like that. And you know, as a security person, last thing you want to do is pull in a cool tool that actually brings in malware. But it's also good to know how to review code, not having to do it line by line, right? Mm -hmm. It can be very time consuming, especially if you're not used to looking at it. But one of the things I always skim the code for is just interesting artifacts. Um, anything that can look like a potential web call, you know, HTTP, HTTPS, that kind of things. I look for those right. types of things. I look for certain directory type references to so different paths to see kind of what is being referenced. Um, registry, you know, directories that I know that are interesting. I might look for any kind of registry pointers, interesting file extensions. Um, and then possible calls for execution in the command line um, ar mm -hmm. arguments. Like if I can find any of those, that's usually where I like to look to see. And then if there's any obfuscation at all, it makes it more questionable, especially if I'm downloading something open source, because typically there's no point to obfuscate that stuff. Right, so if it gets right. really hard to read all of a sudden, then it makes me questionable why, right? So that just like my quick scan. But when I was doing that, just looking at um, the code that the stealer was that I found on GitHub, you know, the first two things in there were it needed to one to validate who the victim's IP address was and where they were located. So I had an, uh, a web call to the api.ipfi.org mm -hmm. and then following that geolocationsdb.com supplying that IP address. Um, mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, you know, that right there, you know that if you see those things in combination, there's something that's probably interesting going on. And then all the things that were being stolen like it steals a bunch of things, the typical stuff, the right. targets don't seem like a uh, industry specific and it seems more like user personal specific. They use Discord to CDNs to share all stolen information back. So there's all the Discord CDN calls and a lot of other you know Discord um, stuff collect because they seem to target a lot of Discord information, but they have a hard coded user agent in there 
Um, right. So it's interesting to say like, you know, hard coder user agent doesn't necessarily mean it's not easy to change, but it's, you know, I wonder how different it is from the standard user agents you'd see today. Sure. Um, and then they had a specific place when they wanted to steal files. So they would steal a bunch of information and they'd steal files and they used um, gofile.io um, slash upload file is their place to drop files. So they use CDN, Discord for any kind of tokens, passwords and things stolen and files is the uh, gofile.io. So already, you know, you can kind of know what kind of network behavior to expect, you know, if you were to get hit by this for some reason. And then there was something that the, the guy was talking about how, you know, his stuff is so sneaky, right? Like how you won't be able to detect it. You won't see it in task manager or task, whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm really interested now because I want to know how is this thing being run that, you know, he's using a run key from the registry. Gotcha. Very, very common technique, right? Uh, the software Microsoft Windows current version run under the user hive. Uh, and the name of the key or the value that he's using is security health sysTray.exe. So it tries to make a blend in, you mm -hmm. know, um, and so no, nothing really you know, interesting from a persistence perspective. But then going back to, you know, when we talk about hunting for things like this, obviously there's IOC type based stuff and there's behavior base. And right. you know, just looking at the code, you know, I when I try to associate that with malware from a behavior, I look at what are the capabilities? If it's really, really difficult to change a capability in the code, I feel like it's more behavior Versus if it's something really easy to change in the code that, that you know, I can change and the code will still run the same way, it's more kind of IOC. And I, I kind of bring that up because obviously I can change the user agent strings to be whatever I want. And then I can recompile that code or run the code because I don't think I have to compile, it's all Python based. It's not going to affect how it runs. But if I want to change how I look up the IP address and how I do the geolocation, I have to find another site. I have to figure out how to deal with the output from that site to incorporate it's it. So it's a little more change, a little more, you know, a, a bigger change, I should say. So that that's more of, I, I think, like the behavior, how I expect something to act. And I can see that being more consistent. Less people are likely to change those things. Um, so you're thinking, so from a hunting perspective, for this particular malware, I mean, we you talked about the Discord CDN, the Go mm -hmm. file, and the registry key, right? So those things are a little bit more static. Right. So right. those would be a little bit easier to hunt in, especially if you don't allow Discord in your environment. Um mm -hmm. and tracking that URL is pretty easy. Now, when he's uploading stuff to that URL, is he I mean, do you know if they're encrypting the actual authentication? Is it hard coded? Is he like I passing mean, from the request in? it has listed there? It has like the the H, the API to the Git server passes some sort of JSON blob, then you know, the data and the server as fields. Um, and then right. it just goes to like an upload file thing. So there might be some some things you have to provide based on, you know, so you make sure you're getting control of where that's going for that sure. service. But, you know, I would think that most people that would use those services would use a front end, like a web front end. So you wouldn't see the API yeah. piece yeah. of that as often, right? You know, that seems more scripted. So anytime you see the API associated with any services, then that would make me feel like there's something else being, you know, done systematically. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, but I mean, you breaking down that malware, it's again from the mind of a hunter looking at what you can actually hunt for from a behavior standpoint, and it, it seems like pretty cut and dry, right? We always talk mm -hmm. about, you know, hunting for behaviors. There are some things that, you know, based on the malware, it might just be a detection. It might just be looking at the the static information on that malware or what it's doing from a from a signature perspective, and the behaviors are, you know. 
not necessarily complex and it might just be easier to track the things like the CDN and the URL and the registry key. And now if, if those things change, like what all are they what else are they doing in the environment that you could potentially hunt on from a behavior standpoint? But it doesn't seem like this one's doing anything. Uh, it doesn't need to do anything explicit because of the way it's dropping the file and how it's getting access to the systems. So it has yeah. its point of entry. Cool. You want to move on? Yeah. So um, the next one, you know, I thought was a really interesting article um, just based on the nature of it. But it's it's from um, the record. And it's basically Microsoft accuses China of abusing vulnerability disclosure requirements. So people that aren't aware of this, this is, I want to say, September of 2021. Um, China had uh, policies um, that they pushed out that basically said, hey, if you're a researcher or a company or whoever you are, and you, know, and you reside within China and you discover some sort of vulnerabilities, you're, you're required to report those to the government first before disclosing to the vendor that owns the software or publicly disclosing those things or whatever that is. So people at that time were a little weary because they're like, well, that's just giving China the time to develop zero days and take advantage mm -hmm. of these vulnerabilities before anyone can even have an attempt to fix them. And there was an investigation. Uh, I don't want to get into the, the weeds on that because uh, it's kind of weird, but they're basically, you know, between the US and China and they kind of found like, well, there's no real evidence based on the conversations they had. But what I really liked was, you know, any kind of conversation is only going to be information that's willing to be disclosed by the participants, right? That's kind of what a conversation is about. There's no real data to support it. Well, Microsoft, after they've been kind of, they have great visibility. And, and I know Microsoft gets like dinged a lot as far as like the security community or, or just doing security in general. But do you think everyone that uses their platforms and things and the amount of telemetry and data they now can take, especially with Defender running as much as it is and, you know, homes mm -hmm. and things like that they have a great sensor net and they have really smart people dealing with data and they kind of care about the data and doing interesting things they were starting to see like well gosh it's crazy that china is seems to be using more zero days than most other adversaries they see from other nation states in a much quicker fashion just from sure. looking at the data so they're, they're starting to think that this is actually because of this policy which does kind of make sense um i think uh i think alibaba I think that's the name of the site. I yep. pulled it right in front of me. But China actually went after them because they had a vulnerability they disclosed to Apache about Apache stuff before they told China. So like you can see how China was trying to enforce that policy and going after people. So, you know, that's an important thing. But, you know, the report, I didn't dig through the entire Microsoft report, but it's a great report. It's like 144 pages long. Yeah. But they had this whole breakdown. I know. I, I wish I could have read it all. <laughs> right. But they had this great breakdown. Um, they, they were talking about uh, the average days it takes um, from when something is released versus like becomes an exploit. So it says on average, it takes 14 days for an exploit to become available in the wild after something's mm -hmm. released, right? And then it takes 60 days on average for that a proof of concept to usually hit GitHub for said vulnerability. And then it usually takes 120 days to be available for scanning tools to be able to find that reliably. So from a defender standpoint, after something is disclosed, how quickly can you find kind of thing? So you can, and China was able, I think they talked about, it seemed like it was like a two to five day period for some other stuff, um, sure. which is, is incredibly a lot faster. And if you're ahead of that curve, you know, some of the things they were, they were seeing them hit. Um, so they gave examples of some of the targets. They had SolarWinds, ServeU, Zoho, Manager Engine for the AD self-service and the service desk. 
yeah. Microsoft Exchange, which we see a lot of that right lately with all the vulnerabilities, and then Confluence. Um, so all services that are publicly available, you know, on the internet. And if you were able to get your hooks in early, you know, what you can take advantage of. So it's just interesting how policy kind of affects a lot of that and what Microsoft was able to kind of root out based on just the data they're seeing. So it kind of lets you know from like a patching perspective, you know, just knowing that, hey, there's people that might have even quicker turnarounds on exploits, what things you might want to consider that are especially public facing, how quickly you turn those around. Yeah, no, it, the time frame that you're talking about is interesting, right? So you said 14 days for a- On average. On average, and that's for- Exploits to hit the wild. To be exploit, okay. It, that makes sense. The 60 days to approve a concept seems a little long to me. And then the It does based on the stuff we've been seeing, right? Because usually right, if it's, right, right. I feel like if something's really big, it, it hits a lot faster. But there must be ones. things that are just not as interesting or very niche that we just, you know, no one really keeps track of, but it might be important to somebody that want to build zero days, right? And so what was that one thing you number you mentioned again? That was when things were available to be scanned by like defending tools to like discover mm -hmm. the vulnerabilities. Right. That seems long as well. I, I guess it's probably on average, right? Because you take the high severities, the high and the severe, those numbers probably get cut in more than half. Right. So I would yeah, assume think like, yeah. If you scan for versions to determine vulnerabilities, I mean that's fast and easy, right? Sure, sure. Versus if it's configuration, I think those are the ones that usually probably take a lot longer to figure out how to do, or you need credential scanning mm -hmm. and a lot of testing to don't break mm -hmm. things. Yeah, but I'm guessing like Nessus came out with a, a vulnerability scanner for SolarWinds within a couple of weeks because of the visibility on that type of, mm -hmm. you know, CVE. There's hundreds and hundreds of CVEs that even us don't really go after right yeah or right. at least you have the visibility into because they're not top of mind for every organization across the world um and it would seem that china is putting a lot of effort into tracking these type of things right and using these for their benefit i would assume we're doing the same thing um probably just not talked about as much right so ironically it's you bring that up but i remember talking to some of our cyber defenders um and they were saying they're kind of on board with disclosing zero days to the vendors they get fixed because they don't need to rely on them as much you know they're typically good enough with their normal techniques that zero days aren't mm -hmm. necessarily required obviously there's an advantage depending on what it is but it seems like most of them they don't really seem to need right but you know i think putting some of the effort behind it i mean these are the ways nation state actors get into our our companies our organizations our data right so um, I can understand why China was upset that Alibaba didn't disclose their vulnerability first to the government because, you know, they're trying to protect their kind of their enclave, right? Their their nation state. So when something like a, a, a United States based organization has a massive vulnerability, um, like a SolarWinds or like a Zoho, I think they're US based, it would make sense that we could at least understand what that vulnerability is and potentially help them mitigate. Because again, with the resources that you know we have across the board, especially the open source community researchers and mm -hmm. just the people that jump on these kind of things, like it, it just allows us to protect the companies that are in the United States, but also protect other companies across the world that could be exploited for these type of vulnerabilities. So the communication makes sense. It's just how do we properly communicate it, and then what is our response? 120 days is way too long um, on average. 60 days is way too long on average. So it seems like there needs to be some some changes in the, the process and protocols for this. Um, so we don't get another log4j or text for shell or solar winds where 
everybody's just blown up because there's a POC already in the wild by the time <laughs> it's communicated to the organizations, right? Because as soon as the POC is in the wild, that's when it gets dropped into things like Metasploit and the quote unquote script kitty type tooling. So you can go exploit it. Anybody can go exploit it, right? It takes the yeah, complexity out of those vulnerabilities. The responsible disclosure typically follows a pattern where, you know, researcher lets vendor know they what they fix it within a reasonable expected amount of time. So the researcher could then disclose everything they found at the same mm -hmm. time a fix is available, right? It's it's when you have like one happening before the other, you know, when it right. comes to things being disclosed too soon is when you run into all those problems. Yep, absolutely. Um, all right, cool. Uh, moving on to the next one. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna kind of kick this off and pass it over to you because I know you did a lot of work on this one uh, last week. But um, in the news last week, there was and this is from Malware Tech. Um, it's about the new OpenSSL 3.0.7 patch, but really around the OpenSSL 3 vulnerability. This was an interesting one. This is one that I know from a lot of the the context we have. This was on everybody's radar, right? Everybody uses OpenSSL. Um, this came out as a, uh, a high, or was it severe critical vulnerability to start? Uh, it was one of those, oh crap, this is gonna be another log for shell type event, because um, it's baked into literally everything you use, programming language, uh, infrastructure, app builds. So through the process though, kind of understanding how the exploit could be um, actually used in the wild from a PSC perspective, and exploited, they kind of downgraded it to a high. Um, it's still encouraged to upgrade, but the way you actually go to exploit this particular CVE, uh, it's 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 hard to do, right? Um, and I think there's some details around, uh, it has to be triggered by the, uh, the actual client authentication requests. So it's not as exploitable and it open to, people who are gonna exploit this as they thought initially. Um, but Scott, I know you worked on this from a hunt package perspective. You want to kind of get into some detail around this one? Yeah. So one, I really liked the write-up. Um, I thought that out of all the things I was reading, they did uh, a really good cover down as far as what it is and what the risks, risks really mm -hmm. are. Um, but basically it, it is associated with puny code. So if you're not familiar with puny code, assuming I'm saying that correctly, it's the way where special characters um, that are not typical in like the English language specifically how they get encoded with you know ascii uh so that you can use those types of special characters and a lot of times you'll see it where it'll be like xn dash some of the characters you want to see dash some sort of code that gets translated into special characters and then whatever it is it's in the string um yep. and so it's just a way for that information to be passed it's a common method um for that but it really was associated with the email address field in the x509 certs which allowed mm -hmm. that buffer overflow because you have special kind of encoding, things are being able to, you know, over, overflow. And then what was actually happening is it was, it was crashing the crypto service or, or binary associated with the open SSL piece. Um, so they, you know, they, they call it a denial of service type of vulnerability, right? So with that, um, it is more of a client side risk because obviously clients are requesting the search from servers when they visit those sites. Um, so if it's a server that has their cert set up that way, that's what they'd be at risk. But it happens after the validation process where a cert has to be signed by a trusted CA already before it even gets to that point. So now you know that it has to be a cert that's already that's trusted and signed by a CA 
before it even could crash. So if you don't mm -hmm. even have those first things, it's you know, which are pretty big things to get done, it's less likely to happen. And then the server side is very low risk because typically you don't uh, have a server configured to where it needs the client to offer up a certification certificate to authenticate to the server. Now right. there's some instances I thought of that could be kind of bad associated with that, and also a server is not going to check if it's been signed by a trusted CA typically either. Um, so you can bypass that initial check typically. But in most cases, like I said, you wouldn't be using a client-side cert to authenticate to the server. It'd be the other way around. But I was thinking about VPN concentrators that uses certs. They're usually public-facing. And if you're using a cert for authentication and the cert's the first step, that might be a chance for someone to potentially try to connect with a bogus cert. Now, well, a lot of cases, you have them signed. Yeah, go ahead. You were, you were saying that cert has to be signed by the CA initially. For the yeah, so I'm assuming so. if you had VPN concentrators, you would have a it be signed by something you trust and you'd actually do that validation so you wouldn't be as much of a risk. But, mm -hmm. you know, in a case where that could happen, I was thinking that was the only thing that was similar to that process. But why D or I say DDoS, but I really mean DOS vulnerabilities are kind of a big deal is especially when it comes to software. They're usually the precursor to remote code execution. So that's why I think a lot of people were spun up on, hey, this could be something we really care about, something we need to worry about. Because typically in software, when you have something crashing, you're either corrupting or rewriting areas in the memory, or you're manipulating or and overflowing the stack, uh, which is basically where all your executable code is being stacked you know, in the processes. So if you're able to like push yourself past a certain point on the stack to other code to utilize it or put your code certain places, that's when you run into, run into that remote code execution. So they haven't, it hasn't, you know, matured to that. And I don't know if it will, but the symptoms and things that, you know, are good to pay attention to is now people are going to be paying attention to this as, as we've seen, you know, with log four or log four J and things like that. Um, people will find potential other flavors of this. We'll be poking yeah. at it more to look for, you know, so it's good to try to still kind of keep this on your radar. And so we do have two hunt packages. If you, if you go to cybersecurity.com, you know, you sign up, you can get a Hunter um, account with the community editions. We have the OpenSSL application spawned Windows error reporting, potential OpenSSL exploit and crash attempt, or OpenSSL application crash associated with crypto-related DLL and the Windows event log. So one's really focusing on the where fault, exe, you know, exe, where things that are crashing associated with OpenSSL. Mm -hmm. And then the other one's focusing on the application log, event ID 1000. Um, when things crash associated to the crypto-related DLL. And why these might be important, just to be aware of. One, it kind of gives you an idea of if people are trying things or there might be some malicious sites. Or, you know, there's some times where, and we've, we've talked about this before, when exploits are written, there's a chance of success, right? Sure. Uh, so even if there's not a vulnerability that we know about with these, looking at crashing things is kind of a good thing to look at because sometimes if it's like a medium chance of success, that means maybe 50% of the time it crashes whatever it is. And it might not crash it in a way that it brings the whole system down, but it crashes that service and then it will usually respawn itself or whatever. Mm -hmm. So crashing services, especially repeated crashing services, might be a sign of someone attempting to exploit something. And it's good to kind of put on your radar. And so, so that's where I, I like the approach. We're looking for things crashing the way we did for this. Um, and you can probably use kind of our thought process to kind of come up with other things you might care about, or even look for this over a period of time in case this develops or changes, or maybe they find other places they can use Punicode that, you know, get, you know, 
process improperly. So it's just kind of uh, our approach and kind of what it's all about, but it seems like a pretty low risk, easy to fix um, when you actually sure. put the whole thing in scope. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great breakdown. And, and to your point, again, because the, oh, this is public visible around OpenSSL, this particular version, I'm sure this thing's getting hit for other versions, right? So one of the things you can do is probably hunt back over time to look for, you know, depending on your version of OpenSSL or if there's a unknown exploit, looking for some of these behaviors across the board, not particular to this vulnerability, but this could help you catch something that might be an undisclosed or a net new thing that somebody has been exploiting in the past or in the wild, right? So um, it's really good methodology and the approach on the hunting perspective. I don't really have much else to add. I know I'm just glad this didn't blow up like a a, a longer yeah, show. We were waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, and and you know my brother's a, an engineer over at IBM, and and talk with him, he was like, yeah, it was all hands on deck because it came out as a critical, and once it got kind of really drilled into, again, you have CISOs and managers that are like open SSL. I know that word. Uh, this could be bad across the environment, right? Without actually mm -hmm. digging in to understand how it's exploited. So. He had a couple of long hours having to dig into all the, you know, the code and looking versions. But again, the the risk wasn't there for what he was doing and what a lot of organizations are doing across the board based on. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm hoping that things like this, because OpenSSL is, you know, pretty popular, right? Amongst and embedded in a lot of things and the log for, you know, J stuff, same thing. I'm really hoping this kind of stirs people to do a better job of, identifying the things in their environments um, mm -hmm. and knowing what they're trying to defend because that's kind of the whole point of those you know cis controls or standards about your inventory of software inventory of hardware it makes these problems when I mean, you don't have that very 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 hard to manage regardless of how severe they are um, and it's really worth that amount of time and hopefully that's the biggest communication you can get to your leadership is we need to be able to do these things you know way we, we want to so yeah and that's why you know there's tools out there that track package um you know packages you have installed but guarantee you a large organization if somebody came to you like where's where's open ssl deployed <laughs> that's gonna be a long week right yeah. and so you know doing that work early and often helps um but you know every open source tool you use every program you use every application you use i mean that's that's a long list um so <laughs> i can imagine that this Again, that's why I really appreciate this article from Tech because they did break down the risk very well. So people understood and didn't have to go through that that process without having to report up, look, like this is the risk. This is where we're at. You know, we don't, this is not something that we need to go DEF CON on. So, All right. Cool. Well, another great week. Another great set of articles. Yeah. Um, Scott, you want to close it out? Yeah, so I just want to thank everyone for joining. Um, this is our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back with everyone next week, and we'll dive into another top five threat hunting headlines. Um, but this covers down on the week of November 7th, 2022. All right, take care. Good talking with you, Scott. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.